Hey, Pastor Josh here. Thanks so much for watching our videos. If you'd like more information about Legacy City Church, you can go to LegacyCityChurch.com. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell below. God bless you. We are in Matthew chapter 20 in our Bibles, Matthew chapter 20, and we are working through a series I've titled Jesus Worldview, and this is sermon number 78 through the book of Matthew, and uh, it has been a, a wild ride through the book, but I'm enjoying it. Um, we will cover verses 17 to 28 today. If you're taking notes, the title of the sermon today is Sipping the Cup of Christ. Sipping the Cup of Christ. And again, this is sermon number 78. Heard of a story, maybe heard of this one too. There's a bus full of ugly people, true story. <laughs> Come on, settle down, it's okay. And they had a head-on collision with a truck, and when they died, God granted them one wish, and the first person said, I want to be gorgeous. And God snapped his fingers, and it happened. And the second person said the same thing. God, I want to be gorgeous. God snapped his fingers, and it went on and on through this group of all these people. And God noticed the last man in line, he was laughing hysterically. And by the time God got to the 10th person, the last man, he was laughing and rolling on the ground hysterically. And when the man turned came, uh, God said, well, what do you want? He laughed and said, I wish they were all ugly again. <laughs> Come on, is that okay? Are you guys all right? We're going to get serious today, so I thought I'd lighten up the crowd a little bit. You can use that one at work if you want to, okay? <laughs> um, but, uh, but what I found in our world and in our church to some degree, um, sometimes we, we, are, we are not always cheering and rooting each other on. Instead, we're trying to pull each other down and get ahead of the next. And really, that's backwards from the spirit of Christ. Um, our world and the church, to some degree, have tried to convince us that when we walk with God, everything will become perfect, and we will excel above all others, and uh, we'll never go through anything difficult in life. And as we will see, some think that they can go as far as to ask for the greatest position in the kingdom of heaven because we think we deserve it. Some will even go so far as to try to work their way into the greatest position of the kingdom so that they will never have to suffer. Uh, but Jesus turns this upside down and on its head. He says, you want to see what the greatest position in the kingdom looks like? Look at me. Look at me. He says, I'm the king, and, and watch what I will do. Watch what I will go through. Watch how I will handle myself and handle people. The king of the kingdom and what he ends up going through. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful picture here before us today. It is Matthew chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 17. Can we stand for the reading of God's word? We always stand for the reading of his word to pay honor to him. <clears throat> Excuse me. And remember whose word we are reading. Not my words. My words can't change you, but God's word will change you forever. It will actually minister to you in places that I can never get to. I can encourage and motivate, but I can't change the heart. I can't change the mind. Only God's word can do that. Matthew chapter 17, take a look at our story. As Jesus was going about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And he will deliver him over to the Gentiles to mock and flog and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. 
Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that your kingdom, in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. But he said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. After hearing this, the ten become indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over. Their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as Jesus, or just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit, you administer to us. Speak to us right where we're at. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Last week, we saw the Lord bring a parable to the disciples, one which explains that the kingdom of God is far more gracious than you can imagine. So gracious that it can cause others to grumble at God's grace. But the Lord Jesus was showing the disciples that those seen as first, the kings and queens of the world, will be last in God's kingdom. And those seen as last in the, the world, the children and the poor in spirit, will be, actually be first in heaven, Jesus points out. The scene changes in our story after Jesus tells the parable and they get ready to make their way up to Jerusalem. He's like, pack your bags, boys. We're going to Jerusalem. Get your luggage ready. Load it up on the donkeys. We're going to Jerusalem. And as they go on their way, the Lord takes a moment to tell the future to his guys. He says, guys, get over here. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you a secret. I'm going to let you in on something. I'm going to tell you the future. Look what happens, verse 17. And as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples up by his aside by themselves and on the way he said to them behold we're going up to jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death so again on their journey to jerusalem jesus stops the guys to fill them in on what's about to happen they are about to enter the city and the lord says guys i got to tell you this i'm going to tell you the future this will happen to me the details Notice, Bible students in your text, the details are so specific, no one would dare tell the future like this. If you didn't know, the Bible dares to tell the future over 2,000 times. And uh, it, it would be dangerous to try to do it one time, right? One time. Uh, but it dares to do it many times. Notre Dame tried to tell the future and uh, kind of, uh, you know, stumbled around in doing so. But some say in his general telling, he was able to do so. The Bible gets very specific and, and dares to do this and actually does it. The Lord gets so specific in telling his boys what's about to happen. And unless you were actually the Lord God Almighty, who has no beginning, who has no end, who sees all of time, uh, you couldn't be able to do this. He says, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the chief priests, and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Jesus reversed to himself first as the Son of Man who will be betrayed. This phrase 
is actually being stretched in our day, in our culture, if you didn't know it. A couple weeks ago, a guy tried to correct me on why Jesus called himself the Son of Man. And he said, the Son of Man, did you know the Son of Man is all of us? I said, oh, really? And uh, he said, yeah. And he said, do you know what the Son of Man means? And I, I said, I was trying to pull it up off the top of my head. I said, I believe it's a Jewish title um, that they used in the Old Testament, you know. And uh, he, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. I said, yeah, but he also calls himself the Son of God. And they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy uh, because he made himself equal with God. And then he said, did, did Paul say that or Jesus say that? I said, Jesus he said, are you sure? And I'm like, yes, absolutely. Uh, then then uh, he, he basically was rejecting Jesus as son of God and trying to strip him of his deity, which cults have been trying to do for thousands of years. Clearly, he didn't know where the phrase son of man came from, but he was acting like he did. And uh, he heard basically a new age Catholic priest that is around in our time now telling him the son of man refers to us all, which is not true. And that Christ is actually everyone, a universal picture of salvation. And that, uh, not saying that Jesus is the Christ and the Messiah, but he tried to pull it and swing it the other direction. And so if you come across these teachings, just know uh, all you have to do is go back to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's not aligning himself with all of us. He's actually doing the opposite. The phrase Son of Man comes from Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Does that describe any of us? I don't think so. Matthew 24, 30, at that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Mark chapter 14, verse 61, but Jesus remained silent and made no reply. Again, the high priest questioned him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. So when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, he is referring to the role of Messiah, saving the world from sin and ruling, reigning in power as the Lord over all. Uh, all of the new teachings are very sneaky and clever, and they pull text, and they bend them and twist them to try to make them say things that they don't. You heard this saying before, if it's new, it's probably not true, and if it's true, it's probably not new. Only the Son of God can sit at the right hand of God, and Jesus says the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. The Lord shares what will happen. Not might, but will happen, and no one can stop it. His will will be done. They will betray him. We know Judas will do this and hand the Lord over to the chief priests and the scribes for 30 pieces of silver. The chief priests will condemn him. How? They will tell Pilate, the Roman governor, that he deserves death. And Pilate says, why? Why does he deserve death? And they say blasphemy, that's why. He blasphemes God by calling himself the son of God. 
and calling himself the Messiah, Luke chapter 22 and 23. Verse 19 also tells us, Jesus says to his boys, and he, the Son of Man, will, they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans. This is very specific. Just a little ways out in the near future, I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to deliver me over to the Romans. He also says they will mock me. They're going to mock him, spit in his face, laugh at him, and call him all kinds of things. They will flog him, it says. Jesus says they will flog the Son of Man. Again, very specific. Who would, who would predict this? Flogging is the process of taking a man in which they would, they would tie him to a stone or to a piece of wood, and they would take what they called the cat of nine tails, which was leather strips that were dipped in bone and glass. And then they would hammer his back for 39 lashings or 40 minus one. If you got the 40th lashing, they would, they would try to put you to death right there. But the, the last lashing not being given, 39 lashing was a sign of mercy. That they weren't looking to kill you in this moment, just torture you. And we know they beat him with the cat of nine tails and ripped his back open and prepared him for more suffering, the crucifixion. And Jesus predicted this as well. He says they will actually crucify the Son of Man as well. This is going to happen. Again, very specific. They could have, he could have been killed in many ways. It's very, it's very normal in our minds to hear this, the crucifixion, because we have seen Passion of the Christ and heard of the crucifixion of Christ many times. We can't think of anything else. But if I said so-and-so was going to die in a very specific way that only criminals die... I don't know, let's say they're going to put him in the gas chamber. You say, what, that innocent guy? They're going to do that to him? That's the electric chair? That's crazy. They're, not going, to, they're going to hang him in another country? They're not going to do that? But they, in a very specific way that only criminals die, he says, this will happen to me when we enter Jerusalem. And if I said this, everybody would look at me funny. But when Jesus says it, they're looking at him thinking like, wait, what's going on? They're going to crucify the Lord? But praise God, Jesus doesn't stop there. He says in verse 19, but on the third day, he will be raised up. He continues to tell the future, and he closes the story properly. Jesus foretells his own resurrection on the third day. Notice, not the second day, not the fourth day, but a specific day. You don't make specific uh, tellings of the future like this unless you want to mess the whole thing up. How, 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 you'll be, how you'll get to jail? Who's going to be involved? What exactly is going to happen in the torture? Then how you're going to be put to death? Then on this day, you're going to raise from the dead. The Lord lays out the future very clearly. It's unreal. Can you imagine if the Lord sat you down and told you the end of your life? These disciples, as we know, are having a hard time believing it, and I believe that we would have a hard time receiving the end of our own lives. And the way that you know this is to go look into the eyes of an old person, somebody who's lived all of life, and they will tell you stories. And they will probably say, life didn't exactly go the way that I thought it was going to go. But if you know an older person who is a Christian, they're going to say, the one thing that was constant and consistent was the Lord in my life. He was with me all the way through. 
the story went this way and that way, and I didn't think that was going to happen. But Christian family, you can know that the Lord is going to be with you through it all. Praise God. Remember, the first time Jesus tried to tell Peter this, he rebuked him, remember? He's like, Lord, you will not do this. I forbid you. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. You will not stop the plan of God. Peter tried to rebuke the Lord for saying these things, but we know the Lord has plans for good. And we know that this is not an easy thing even for the Lord to go through. But he knew the plan of his father. It was to save the world of their sins through the work of Christ on the cross. It was a rescue mission. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember before he went to the cross? Matthew 26, 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as i will but as you will not my will but yours be done family can we really pray this for our lives that's not an easy prayer huh not an easy one for the lord as he was facing the cross but listen we need to acknowledge we are not in control of our lives anyways are we uh, we like to think we are. I like to try to control as much as possible. Trust me, just get to know me. But we're not in control now, are we? We like to think we are, but it doesn't take much to show us that we aren't. And here's the greatest news. If I have to choose between my life being in my hands or in God's hands, I gladly yield to Him because my hands are weak. I gladly yield to the strongest hands in the universe. I gladly yield to the best father with the best plans, who is good to the core. There is no darkness in him. All he does is good. And so if it's possible, let this suffering pass from me. But nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I trust you. I trust you above myself. I trust your ways above my ways. It takes a long time to learn this. When I was younger, I used to think my ways were way better. I got way better ideas. I got way better thoughts than the Lord. I know way better than him. And Lord, I'm going I'm to draw a map of exactly the way life should go. You need to do this and this and then. This is how it's going to go and that's what's going to happen. And the Lord says, let me take you on a ride. But praise God, he is captain of the boat. Praise God, he's captain of the ship. He is the one taking care of all of this, and that boat will not go down. But in my hands, it might. I don't trust my own hands anymore. I've seen them fail me many times. All it takes is time. Just let time happen, and you will see your own hands break and crumble, and we'll be forced to lean on the Lord. Family, instead of trying to take matters into your own hands, trust them into the Lord's hands first. Say, Lord, I give this to you. I trust you. I give this to you. Then as he gives it back into your hands, get to work. Honor him. Walk with him. Let him bless you. Praise God that he raises all things to life. Amen? Isn't that what he's in the business of doing? He is the God of resurrection now, isn't he? That's what he does. He redeems things. 
He takes things that are broken and makes them new. He takes things that are dead and brings them to life. He takes our sin and the stupid stuff we do, and he somehow turns it for his glory. He makes us thankful for his forgiveness and grace in our lives. It softens us, and we learn to love and serve like he does. I'm so thankful he brought this in his foretelling the resurrection. He doesn't just talk about all the junk. He says, no, no, let me talk about the good stuff that's coming. After Jesus tells his disciples the near future and his resurrection, the mother of the two disciples, who must have been traveling with them, I don't know where she came from, mommy's on the trip, the mother of James and John come up to him and ask a question. Take a look, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request. There must have been some prior conversation between mom and sons because they come with a plan. Mommy and her two sons approach Jesus. Now, why aren't the disciples just doing this on their own? This is two of the 12. This isn't of the 70. This is two of the 12, the main guys. Yeah, apostles. Why aren't the disciples just going up to Jesus on their own? Because they need mommy. Or mommy is pushing them because they are scared and they want mom to do it. These are two grown men. Kind of sounds like some of the men today. Settle down, settle down. Too scared to do something themselves, so they ask mommy to do it. Brothers, don't let that be you. Take risks. Don't be scared of rejection or being told no. That's a part of life, okay? Ask that girl out. Ask for that raise. Start a business. Do hard things, please. Don't be scared. You go to God alone. You stand before him alone. Don't make mommy do it for you, okay? Time to grow up. So mommy leads these two disciples. And again, they are the 12 apostles, two of the 12. God uses, I mean, does incredible things now, doesn't he? These are guys who come to the Lord all scared, but they fall on their faces and bow down. And mommy says, we have a request. Here it is, verse 21. And he said to her, what do you wish? He said to her. What do you wish? She came to him. Hey, Lord, uh, I know I got my two sons here, but I want to set the floor here. Uh, we they, 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 uh, want to talk to you. She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. So mommy gives the big ask. Jesus, when you sit on your throne in your eternal kingdom, can my sons James and John sit on your right and your left? We want to be the guys. Notice there are 10 other disciples not far from the conversation. They're all packed up, ready to go to Jerusalem. And we'll see if they're going to get ticked in a, in a couple seconds here. But she is essentially asking, can they be the top dogs? Can they be the greatest? Can, can I lead at the top position? These are the guys you want, Lord, my, my, my sons. A couple things quickly. We should commend them for bowing and believing Jesus as Lord and that he has a kingdom and will rule and reign. Kudos. 
Uh, where they go wrong is trying to assume position. We want to be greater than the other disciples. We know there are only two seats to your right and left, and we want to be your princes. Crown us. Crown us. Danger. The moment you ask to be crowned, you just lost your crown. The moment you fight with others to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you're no longer anywhere near the greatest. You're actually in a prideful place and have lost position with the Lord. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup, what I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. These guys... Notice the conversation turns towards the brothers. Notice Jesus stops talking to mommy and he turns his eyes to James and John and he says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they are foolish and prideful enough to say, yes. We are able to drink the cup. Pour it up, Lord. Let's go. I, I want to hold a goblet and sit next to you on the throne. Let's go. The cup he is speaking about is the cup that he just described to them in the last conversation, the cup of crucifixion. But even scarier than mocking, flogging, and crucifixion is the cup of the wrath of God Almighty, a cup of hell. Are you willing to drink a cup of hell? Are you willing to drink down hell? Jesus is saying, which I'm about to drink down for, for every person who will ever have their sin forgiven and not go to hell because I drank it for them. They say, yes, we can drink it. They don't know what they are talking about. Never forget, I heard this a sermon jam like probably 10, 15 years ago. A guy named John Piper said this. He said, how can one man in a matter of hours drink down the wrath of God that would have taken an eternity to be poured out on me. How can that be? Let me say it again. How can one man in a matter of hours drink down the wrath of God that would have taken an eternity to be poured out on me? How can he drink it down in a matter of hours for millions of people? How can that be? That cup is far larger than any of us could ever imagine. And Jesus drank down the wrath of God, which is what? Hell, separated from him for all of eternity. Jesus drank it down for us. Pride makes us look foolish and ask for things we don't have any clue about. They said yes to a cup of hell. Verse 23, and he said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus says, okay, boys, you actually will drink the cup I will drink, or should we say they will sip on the cup of Christ. The title of our sermon today is Sipping on the Cup of Christ. They will sip on his cup, barely, the physical one, but not the spiritual one. James and John would face the wrath of men, sipping on the cup of Christ, but not the wrath of God, which of course they are now thankful for. Jesus drank hell for James and John. Jesus drank down hell for us. And now in eternity they say, thank you, Jesus, for not letting me even sip on that cup. 
But church history tells us that James will go on to die by, as a martyr by the hands of Herod. He will be beheaded, Acts chapter 12. And John will be rejected, and they will attempt to kill John by jailing him, then trying to boil him in oil, but he won't die. So they will ban him to the island of Patmos in exile, where he will write the book of Revelation. So both of these guys will, buy, will, will die a martyr's death in suffering. They sip on the cup of Christ's suffering. And did you know, church, I know this isn't popular, but it's actually the truth. Um, it's easy to sell Christianity and candy coat it and make it found, you know, feel all fluffy and happy and, and nice. That, 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 those are wonderful things, but so often uh, the preachers leave out all the other real stuff that Jesus says, like, in this life you will have tribulation. Wait, what? Jesus is like, if you come to me and you follow me in this life, you will have tribulation. But he doesn't stop there, praise God, right? But take heart, he says, I've overcome the whole world. You're going to have tribulation, but don't worry. I'm going to be with you in the tribulation all the way to the end. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed at the re revelation of his glory. Peter says, don't be surprised when you suffer as a Christian. It's going to happen to us all. Philippians 1.27, nevertheless, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come or see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending side by side for faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you this is a clear sign of their destruction but of your salvation and it is from god here it is for it has been granted to you on behalf of christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him since you're encountering the same struggle you saw i had and now hear that i still have church we are promised struggle and suffering. Is a servant greater than his master? No. If Christ suffered, we will also suffer, but that's where the miracle is found. Did you know it? That is where the miracle is found. Listen, it is in the suffering. When God sustains us in suffering, it is the miracle to the world around us because everyone is looking for the magic pill to get through suffering. And that magic pill is found in God. The magic is found in his sustaining power. It's in Christ. It's in his love. It's in his peace. It's in his rest that only he can give to the human soul. So no one ever gets to see, see the miracle unless we actually suffer. And I don't know how you suffered. I don't know if somebody's passed in your, your family or your friends. I don't know if your marriage has gone through things or things with your kids or things with your business or things with, with life and, and what's going on in this city. I don't know what you're going through, but I want you to know this, that God is going through it with you. Praise God that Christ is in the suffering. Praise God it doesn't just say you're going to suffer. Hang on. It says that in the suffering, this is where God gets the glory. Have you ever looked into the eyes of somebody who's going through difficulty, who loves God? It's powerful. 
It's one of the most powerful things you could ever see. Because what you see is someone who is being sustained by God. They're going through pain, but they're being sustained. And you see joy come forth. And you see God pull through in powerful ways. And you start worshiping on the other end and you can't believe it. That's the power of the gospel. The resurrection is only awesome because we watch Christ die a terrible death. The more terrible the suffering, the greater the resurrection, right? The greater the moment when he rises and says, ta-da, look it, look what's happened. The same in your life. When I look back on my suffering, I look back on the things that I've gone through, and I watch Christ use that to help me minister to others, or I watch Christ use that to sustain me and be real in my own life. I believe God is the most real in your life when you go through something difficult. He becomes so real. You, grab, you can almost tangibly grab onto him because you have nothing else to grab onto. Oftentimes we don't realize that Christ is all we need until Christ is all we have. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we now have this light shining in our hearts. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. Watch this. Paul says, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we not driven down to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies, in our lives. It's the greatest miracle. I know nobody wants to go through the pain. Without pain, there is no gains, truly. In the gym and in real life, I'm telling you, no pain, no gains. You watch people grow very quick spiritually when we go through stuff. And everybody does, okay? Everybody. Nobody does not go through the fire. As a Christian, we will all go through it, and God will pick his path in which you will take, and you will go through it, and you will experience it. It will drive you to your knees. You'll cry out to the Lord. He will forgive and make right and resurrect and redeem. That is the story of our lives. Jesus says, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. The Lord explains, this plan of who will be on my right and left is actually already predetermined and planned by my Father. Flash forward, it's two criminals, remember? Both being crucified on his left and his right, hanging on a cross, being nailed through the arms and through the hands and through the feet, Jesus says, you don't want this. And one of them will deny me and the other will receive me. They will be on my right and my left the day I enter the kingdom. Verse 24, and hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Peter standing over there like, did you hear James and John? They just asked to sit next to the Lord in the kingdom. Did you? Get over, come on, let's go, Philip, let's go get him. You put him in a headlock, I'm going to hit him, okay, let's go. <laughs> they walk up on him, maybe Peter pushes him, you know, like, what are you doing? 
They're all mad. All of a sudden, the other 10 disciples hear what's going on. These two disciples asking for the CEO and CFO positions to run the company. They want to be the greatest in the kingdom. And the other disciples get ticked off. We already have seen Jesus rebuke these guys for this in, a, in past conversations, but they are still fighting over who will be the greatest. If you want an extensive study on this, I just did it like five sermons ago in a sermon called, Who Wants to Be the Greatest? Matthew 18. Who wants to be the greatest? Jesus talks about it. We talk about it. But I'm telling you the place, I'm telling you that the place I thought I would see it, this who wants to be the greatest in my life, challenging one another and trying to get one up over the other, the place I thought I would see it the least would actually be in the church. Pastors playing chess behind the scenes as to who will be the greatest. Who will have the biggest? Who writes the best books? Who speaks at the biggest conferences? They want to be seen as the greatest pastor on earth, the greatest shepherd like Moses. The only problem is Moses didn't want the job. Moses literally told God, you somebody else. I'm not your guy. I got a stuttering problem. I can't do this. And you know what God said? Okay, fine. Your brother Aaron will speak for you because you can't talk, but you're holding the staff. It's true. The Bible says that Moses was the meekest man on the planet. That means he had all the strength and power, but he chose to push it away. He didn't rule with that kind of authority. He chose to push it away. He led millions of people at one time. And he is a picture of Christ. Jesus says, boys, let's have a talk about this. Who wants to be the greatest thing in the kingdom again? Since you guys still don't get it. Verse 25. But Jesus called them and said to himself, said, called them to himself and said, you know, you guys know this. That the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Jesus says, guys, stop. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the rulers of the world, lord authority over each other. They try to big league one another. They try to one-up each other over and over. Game of Thrones, man. This is what they try to do. You did that. Oh, I did this. It was hilarious to watch the billionaires compete for space. As soon as Elon started building a rocket to space, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson have to magically build companies to space. It's hilarious. One up each other, we do this with money, status, cars, clothes, fame, possessions, and people trying to literally make you feel less than if you don't have as nice as stuff. And our city, our town, is the epicenter of this. This is what we do to people. Depending on which neighborhood you live in, and this, I mean, all this stuff, I mean, it's so sad. Remember, we talked about this. It's not bad to have stuff. God has blessed you with wealth. He's blessed you with fruit of your labor. Praise God. It doesn't matter if you have stuff. It matters if your stuff has you. Uh, what do we worship? It's a disease. And Jesus says, boys, this is how the world lives. You're not to live this way. You guys live different. Verse 26, he says, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be your slave. Just as 
The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. If God has blessed you with power or with fame or with authority, whatever he's blessed you with, use it to serve others. He's given it to you. He's blessed you. Use it to serve others. And that's the best, isn't it? When that actually happens. Nail in the coffin. I love how the Lord says this. He doesn't say it shouldn't be this way among you. He doesn't say that. If you look at your text closely, he doesn't say it shouldn't be this way among you. He says, he doesn't say stop acting that way. He says this, it is not this way among you. It is not this way among you guys. You guys are different. You have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus in you, the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit. The Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, faith, meekness, kindness, gentleness. Not pride, not arrogance, not one-upping each other. You are a people who serves each other, not rules over each other. If you want to be the greatest, Jesus says, become a servant like me. Lay down your life like me for others. Become a slave that needs to be purchased by the master of all masters. We were purchased by his blood. He was ransomed for many. And we now belong to him and we choose to walk in his ways, not in the ways of the world. And legacy, I want to tell you, you are an amazing people. You are a generous people. You are loving people. You are a people that choose to lay down your life for one another and lift up others above your own self. I've seen it. I watch it. You're different from the rest of the world. And I want to encourage you to keep walking in that, double down on it. Let God use you with whatever he has given you. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. In John 13, after Jesus washes his disciples' feet, you know what he says to them? He says, John 13, 17, if you know these things, happy are, happy, what? happy are you if you do them. People who serve others, people who have humility and hospitality and bless others and lift others up, they're some of the most happy, genuine people on the planet. You know them, I know them too, and we're thankful for them. Philippians 2, 2, then make my joy complete. By being like-minded, having the same love, being united in spirit and in purpose, the Apostle Paul writes about the Lord Jesus being in us this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty pride, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It was in him. That's what he did. And that's what we get to do for each other. We get to love and serve each other with what we have. Amen? The Lord has been good to us. And I hope that we don't find ourselves, you know, elbowing our way through, you know, to the finish line with our brothers and sisters. But instead, when one falls down, we run over, we help them up and say, let's go. Come on, let's keep going together. We're going together. We're going together. We're going to heaven together. We're not having side conversations in our prayer closet, right? Lord, make me the greatest in your kingdom. Thank you. I know I'm going to be. Thank you. Not Joey over there. Not him, though. Definitely me. Let's do the opposite. Amen. Let's go before the Lord.
Revelation 19 tells us that we talked about sipping of the cup of Christ, of suffering. We will sip of the cup, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we will drink with him at that party, at that feast. And we will be seated with him, not even knowing how we got there. What am I doing sitting at this table? How God be so gracious to let me sit at his table? I'm thankful for his love and his grace. Let it pour into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love today. We thank you for your grace. And I pray, Father, that you would be the sustainer of our lives, that we would anchor in you, that we would turn to you with all of our hearts. God, I pray for your love to be in us, that, that you would use what you have given to us in our lives to bless, Lord, to serve, to lift up, that we'd see our gifts, talents, and abilities, what you've put into us to pour into others. We'd be more focused on loving you and loving our neighbor than trying to be the greatest. Lord, we thank you that you are the captain of our boats. We thank you that you will carry us through every storm of life. Father, I pray for the church now as a whole. Whatever things we are working through right now, I pray that each Christian, Lord, would lift their burden to you now in their hearts. Cast your burden upon me, and I will give you rest. In this moment where they say, Lord, Lord, have your way. I give this to you. I need you. I need you to help me. I yield this to you. I yield to your will. I yield to your plan. Use me for your glory. Teach me all that you desire in this time. Grow me into all that you desire me to be. Father, I pray for every person in this place that we would turn to you with all of our hearts and walk with you from this day forward. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.